Hey folks, and welcome to the Airport Wild Podcast. On today's episode, we're sitting down with Jimmy Hamilton of Vortex Optics to go over binoculars and some ideas and thoughts that maybe you should put into your choice in binoculars, no matter what the brand is. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Sitting here with Jimmy Hamilton of Vortex Optics. Uh, um, Jimmy, I can't thank you enough for for coming on and sitting down with us. No, oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Always happy to talk optics. Oh yeah, that, we're definitely going to get into those weeds today. So, if you don't mind starting out, can you give us a little intro to yourself and you know who we're talking to? Yep, happy to do it. I am Jimmy Hamilton, like you said. Work for Vortex Optics. I have uh, technically been here. Uh, on staff officially for about 12 years now. Um, gotten the chance, a uh, unique opportunity to work in pretty much every department here at Vortex. I started out early on in binocular repair, uh, actually, and learned the ins and outs of binoculars and how they work here. It was, it was a great chance to get my hands on a lot of those products. Uh, moved through um, kind of our rifle scope repair area. You know, that's all part of our VIP warranty service that we have, um, customer care, um, and so uh, for those not familiar, we have a, a VIP warranty that basically means it's a lifetime warranty on all of our products, no matter what happens to it, doesn't matter if it's your fault, our fault, nature's fault, anything's fault. Um, we will repair or replace a product for free, uh, for ever. Uh, and it's fully transferable. It's not complicated at all. If you've got the products, you're covered. You don't need any kind of paperwork or anything like that. So, um, getting to, uh, work in those departments, I got to see some pretty crazy stuff, you know, certainly all the crazy places people take their equipment, um, things can happen. And, and so I got to, I got to see a lot of wild, uh, results of some adventurous activity. Uh, but that was fun. And then I've been, I've been everywhere else. And now I've kind of ended up and found myself in the marketing department. No, that's really cool. I know I've, uh, I've definitely used that, that warranty myself, um, I know I screwed up on, I bought a pair of vultures, a pair of 56 vultures, I think a year ago now. And I had a bino adapter screwed in the front and I, mm-hmm. I got it stuck. So I got kind of, you know, say, Hey, we're going to try something. Decided I was going to screw it out. Well, I went right past the nut and into the, into the main bridge of the optic and sent it <laughs> in. You guys turned right around and uh, I think they're even better now than when I got them originally. Good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah. Like I said, stuff happens. It can sometimes be real simple little things or it can be, you know, stuff falls off cliffs, gets eaten by bears, ends up in crashes and, you know, who knows what, but. Oh yeah. You never know what's going to happen. I remember, um, cause you guys have a really good social media profile as well. Um, I know I get a kick out of seeing you guys on social media. Um, and I remember that was, maybe it was like two years, maybe it's long ago now, but somebody actually like their scope got shot. If I remember right. Yep. Yeah, that happens uh, more than I I would even, or I think anyone would even care to uh, to divulge. So it, it, we see we see stuff get shot on accident, um, yeah, more often than we like. <laughs> right, but uh, but you guys even covered that. Yes, yeah, it's absolutely yeah, so something that we cover. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's the only, um, the only thing we can't cover is loss or theft, and that's just because then there's not a, a product to warranty at that point. Right. So right. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty seamless pretty simple if something's wrong we'll take care of it <laughs> yeah i mean i've i've definitely really enjoyed it. i mean I've, I've been running vortex for i don't remember how long now um the entirety entirety of my wildlife career we've used vortex optics in one form or another so i know i've been pretty pleased right but i guess we should probably get into the into the meat and potatoes of what we got you on here for um so what I'd like to really talk about are, well, binoculars. I know we just talk, kind of talked about them a little bit or got a little intro. But maybe um, I'm kind of thinking some of our viewers, you know, probably aren't that familiar with binoculars or at least they think that, you know, they go to Walmart, you know, a little $50 set of binos is, is great. But, you know, kind of what – get more into what – like table shaking a little bit. What, uh, you know, makes a binocular? Like what really constitutes and what separates Vortex – from you know maybe some other manufacturers out there um so i guess 
I just kind of want to dive in and maybe talk about like some of the parts that, you know, make up a binocular, like uh, and sure. maybe how each part, you know, kind of affects the, the binocular as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on a real basic level, binoculars, um, they are just, uh, it's two optical barrels that are tethered together by a hinge in the center. So you're using both your eyes. You know, there are, is such thing as a monocular, which is quite literally just half of a binocular. Um, but binoculars are a very, very popular tool. Um, I think they can be used for any number of things. They're used in hunting. They're used in just plain outdoor recreation. They're used in law enforcement, military. They're used in, uh, I mean, aviation all over uh, the world. People uh, can benefit from using binoculars. And uh, yeah, they just bring in whatever you want to see that's far away up close for a better look. And the better a binocular gets, generally speaking, the better the image that it's delivering to your eyes is going to get. Uh, we'll get into that here in a little bit, but there are some pretty basic concepts to know when you're talking about binoculars uh, that are really helpful for people uh, right off the bat. So when I talk about the name of a binocular and the configuration, we would call it, I would say Vortex has, we have some uh, family names, like we have Crossfire, Diamondback, Viper, and Razor, for example. You go to any other brand, they're going to have uh, their own family names, and it might be a number, it might be a letter, or it might be names like we have. Um, from there, you'll have the configuration, and that's where some numbers follow after the name. So I might say the Diamondback 8x42, and that'll show up on paper as an 8x42. Um, and all that's referring to that first number, uh, and anytime you have, uh, an optic, as far as sporting optics goes, that first number is going to be your magnification. Binoculars are generally a fixed magnification, so you won't see like a six to 24 or a four to 16. You'll just see one number usually. Um, when you see six to 24, for example, that being like a rifle scope, that's variable power. It can go from six power to 24 power. But again, just speaking to binoculars, they're usually going to be a fixed power. So an 8x42, again, 8 power. That's what it's fixed at. So anything that you look at through those binoculars is going to be fixed 8 times bigger than it would ordinarily look with your naked eye. Uh, the number after that, after the X, the 42 in this case, is the diameter or just the overall size as you look at it of the objective lens. And the objective lens is the lens that is furthest from your eye when you're looking through the binocular. I don't know why exactly. I think that it probably has something to do with the general size effects that it can have on the entire binocular as a whole. I don't know why there's only one lens in an entire system of very important lenses that we give a number to in the name. It makes it seem as though it's the most important lens. Uh, it is an important lens, but there are many other lenses in the system. But anyway, uh, you get the point that that's what that ladder number represents. So hopefully that gives a little bit of a basic rundown on sort of um, getting everybody up to speed on uh, determining sort of uh, what they're looking at when they're seeing binoculars. Um, but I did kind of allude to that objective lens there. Again, that's, that's the lens furthest from your eye when you look through the binoculars. As uh, you move back in each barrel, each barrel has an objective lens. And as you move back inside that system, there are more lenses. In binoculars in particular, we have a, something called a prism inside. Uh, that's a very important part of the optical train as an image, which is um, light. So anytime we're actually looking at anything and seeing anything with our eyes, we're seeing light reflecting off of the surfaces of whatever images we're looking at or objects. Um, so the light enters the objective lens. It comes through the system. It goes through a number of other lenses and a thing called a prism. And then it comes out the eyepiece. And uh, the eyepiece, sometimes that whole uh, portion of the binocular nearest your eye as you're looking through it can be called um, the ocular area. Uh, we call it, you know, the eyepiece as well. Uh, or, yeah, the eyepiece lens is the one nearest to your eye then. And uh, that's kind of how it all flows together. You've got the hinge in the middle, which is going to have a focus wheel at the top of it, nearest again to your nose on that side. Um, which is how you would dial in the focus for images at varying distances. So I would dial the focus wheel to a different focus at, say, 10 yards, an object that I'm looking at relatively close up, than I would have it if I was looking at objects thousands of yards away uh, to make that image clear. Um, and, yeah, there's eye cups, which are the things that you rest your eyes against, and oftentimes they're twist out or twist down. 
Uh, and that's just adjusting to different facial structures. And um, yeah, I think that pretty much uh, goes into about everything. There's a thing called the diopter that gets a little bit complicated to explain. It's hard to explain without showing it, but we can get into that in a bit. I well, think there's I got some stuff we can talk to there. right here if you wanted to. Ah, perfect. Yeah. So uh, I pretty much went through everything but that diopter. Um, there's a right there. yep. Exactly. So if you're seeing on the video right now, on the right side of the binocular, generally speaking, there's a very few uh, exceptions to that rule. Sometimes it can be in the center, which is interesting, and sometimes it can be on the left side, usually if there's a range-finding unit in the right half of the binocular. But generally speaking, it's on the right side, and it's right underneath the eye cup that would twist up and down to adjust for more comfortable viewing. Um, and that individually focuses that right side of the of the binocular um, independently of the left side. And the reason you may want to do that is uh, basically right away. The first thing you want to do when you get a set of binoculars, uh, after you've kind of adjusted the hinge to your face for your interpupillary distance and the distance between your eyes and your face structure, and once you've gotten the eye cup set right, is you want to adjust the diopter. And you usually only have to adjust it about once, uh, you know, maybe another time way down the line. Uh, but you would close your right eye, so the same side as the diopter, and you would use the center hinge uh, focus wheel to adjust the focus. And you're obviously only looking through your left eye at this point, but it's going to adjust the focus of both barrels at the same time. And um, both barrels will essentially be slaved together at that point. And uh, you'll get the left eye perfectly in focus, and then you will close your left eye and open your right eye, which is on the same side as that diopter wheel. And if you look through it and the image looks perfect and it looks perfect through your left eye, then you're good to go. You don't have to make any adjustments. But if it looked perfect through your left eye and it doesn't quite look perfect through your right eye, that adjustment to the diopter independently of the left side will let you fine tune it then to each individual eye. And so you can fine tune that right eye. And then when you open both eyes, both should look perfect. And once you use the center focus wheel from there, then both will look good throughout the whole range of focus. Um, and again, that's just for, that's just for if people have different prescriptions in different eyes, um, or the other thing that can happen is let's say you drop it out of a tree stand, you drop it off of a hill or something, it takes a good bash or beating. Sometimes the focus can get a little off and a diopter adjustment can fix it, um, for the time being until you get it into someone like us to, to redo the focus. So, yeah, cause that's usually, um, I know I, <laughs> I know I've been guilty of, uh, getting the guys at the optics counters kind of aggravated with me because I'll pick up a pair of binoculars and the first thing I do is try to tune them and then yep. I'll tune them and then I'll start, you know, I'll start doing my comparisons. Yep. Uh, and a lot of times if you go into a store to try a set of binos, people fidget with those a lot of times. Sometimes people don't even know what it's doing when they're fidgeting with it. And so I've seen them so many times at shows we've been to or at dealers that I've gone to where you'll walk up to a set of binos and that diopter is cranked over to one side. Yeah. And uh, it would cause anyone to look through the binoculars if they didn't know any better, they would think, geez, these things look terrible. They're giving me a headache. I, you know, I feel woozy looking through them, kind of funny. Um, you'd want to always check that diopter because if somebody did crank it way over for whatever reason, uh, it's chances are not going to look good to you. So, um, yeah, there's a little pro tip. Yeah. Cause that's something, like I said, I've always dealt with at the local counter is, um, well, I'm fortunate the local, uh, shop at their optics counter, they've got one of the, uh, I think it's a Brunton, one of the, um, I'll forget what the actual terminology for, but it's, it's the text, the resolution of a, of a binocular. Yeah. Resolution chart, I think is what they generally yeah. call it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you'll, same thing, you know, you look at them and be kind of fuzzy, so I'll kind of tune it, and then, you know, you get a good comparison, you know, between, you know, whatever optics you're you're looking at. Um, but one thing I kind of wanted to dive into is we talked about, uh, well, you mentioned the magnification and that that uh, objective lens, mm -hmm. and but there's, there's one other level I wanted to talk about, so that I think a lot of folks don't fully understand with binos. And that's how those go together to form your exit pupil. Uh, can, mm -hmm. can you by chance uh, uh, maybe kind of help that out, like help folks figure out what is an exit pupil and why does it matter? Sure. I'll start, I'll start in, in getting there by mentioning when you, uh, when you look through a set of binoculars, generally speaking, there's going to be what we call eye relief. And eye relief means that very few optics, if any out there, I'm not aware of any, 
require your eyeball to be smashed up to the actual glass in order to see the image. There's going to be some distance at which your eyeball will actually be back off of the lens in order to get the ideal image. Um, that's partly where the twist out up and down eye cups will come into play because they're always trying to manipulate where your eyeball is by your face structure uh, in relation to that rearmost lens, that eyepiece lens. Um, and once you get that just right, you'll be in the right spot. It might be, let's say, just for example, five millimeters back from the lens. And at that point, at that eye relief point, you'll have, if you uh, shine a flashlight through the objective lens, ends, or, sorry, objective end of the binocular, if you shined a flashlight through it and then you held your hand right at that distance from the binocular, you'd see a small little circle of light. That little circle of light is ultimately the image of what the binocular is seeing. And when your eyeball is there instead of your hand and you're not shining a flashlight directly through it, then the image that you're seeing downrange will be that little circle of light. And obviously, since it's not a bright flashlight shining through, it won't be just a yellowy flashlight light. It'll be many different colors and it'll be making up the objects that you're seeing. Um, so the size of that little circle is your exit pupil and it has a diameter that we'll measure and that we will be able to give in um, millimeters and that can be calculated by doing the objective lens size so in the case of our 8 by 42 we would do uh, 42 millimeters divided by the magnification which is in this case uh, 8 in our example um, so if I were uh, quicker at math and I wasn't like a little bit uh, groggy today after the Labor Day weekend, I'd be able to say what that is off the top of my head. But uh, well, let's say it's a ten. Let's say it's a ten by forty-two, and we go. just know that that's easy peasy math. That's just a four point two millimeter exit pupil. Um, so if you have a four point two millimeter exit pupil, the diameter of that little circle of light back on your eyeball is going to be four point two millimeters. Why is any of that important? Um, well. The thing is that our pupil is ultimately the opening in our eye. It's the black part of your eye inside of the nice colorful part that everybody probably compliments. Um, but your pupil is the opening in your eye that lets light in, which then goes down to your retina at the back of your eye, which the retina is the thing that gives your brain the information on what it's seeing. And uh, your pupil will be open a certain or dilated a certain amount based on ambient light. So if it's really bright outside, an ordinary adult pupil will constrict to somewhere between two and four millimeters. So if you have 4.2 millimeters there in our example of a circle of light that your pupil can take advantage of and your pupil is constricted down in bright daylight down to two millimeters, then there's a bunch of excess light that your eye doesn't even need to give the retina enough information to give your brain enough information to see what it's looking at. Um, so essentially having too much light is never really uh, necessarily a bad thing. It can be, I suppose, if you're just like literally looking directly into the sun. But in the case of trying to get a nice crisp image, um, you definitely don't want it to be dim or dull. So having plenty of light for your pupil to essentially suck in or soak in at that point is great. Um, where you can potentially see some drawbacks is if it's really low light, where the average adult pupil may dilate to, if you're still pretty young, maybe five to six millimeters. Um, most people, as they age, that goes down somewhat because the muscles that open and close or, or dilate and change the size of your pupil, they get a little bit stiffer. Um, but anyway, so if your pupil is wide open because it's really low light out, but it's still only getting this 4.2 millimeter little circle of light to work with. It's not necessarily getting to utilize the full amount of light that it would like to, to give your brain an image of, or an idea of what it's looking at. And it may appear slightly dull or slightly dim. Right. Um, so what people will say is that for low light scenarios, having a bigger exit people. So either going to a larger objective size while maintaining the same magnification or going to a smaller magnification while maintaining the same objective size will help. And if all else is similar, that's, that's certainly not incorrect. Um, but there is some really important uh, notes to be made with exit pupil. Um, so exit pupil is a, uh, a specification that should only be used when you're looking at uh, binoculars in this case, it it's also can be calculated in rifle scopes too, but it gets a little bit different um, 
with certain rifle scopes. But anyways, uh, it should be used within the same family of optics. So if we're talking about the crossfire line of optics, that's our Vortex's most entry level. It's, it's certainly not something that I would say is your clamshell, you know, whatever cheap set of binos that you get. It's actually a legitimate set of binoculars that we would use in many different scenarios. But anyways, it's our entry level, let's say. Um, I might say that the 10 by 42 crossfire has this 4.2 millimeter exit pupil. And then let's say I go to our razor binoculars, which are a set of binoculars that cost 10 times as much, and they're our highest end binocular. Uh, if I look at the 10 by 42 binocular in that lineup, I would see that it too has a 4.2 millimeter exit pupil. So people that are new to binoculars would say, okay, well, in low light then, the image must look just as bright through the crossfires as it would through the razors because they have the same exit pupil. Um, Unfortunately, that's not the case at all. And that's where the exit pupil comparison really starts to break down um, because there's so much more that goes into low light performance uh, than just the actual exit pupil. It's it's what's inside of that exit pupil um, that really has a profound effect. And uh, 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 an optic like the Razor, for example, has so many things going on in its optical system and its lens design and the coatings that we put on the lenses and the prism design um, that's making what it can provide to you in its 4.2 millimeter exit pupil much brighter, clearer, crisper, um, you know, more resolute than, you know, something that costs one-tenth the price. So hopefully that maybe explains a little bit. No, I think it does. I think that's that's great information. and. I fully agree with, I mean, you're the expert, but I fully agree with that. Cause, um, cause I was thinking more like along the lines of, you know, staying in that same family, but you're going to choose a different, you know, people across the country are going to use different optics or, um, within the same family, but of different mm-hmm. sizes. So like, so I was born and raised, I'm from New York originally. Right. You know, very, yeah. Very, um, dense woods, Northern New York state, uh, where a big optic really, more hinders you than anything uh you know we ran a lot more like um eight by 42s you know to get that better exit pupil uh and you know a lot of cloudy days too versus i live here in arizona now and it's not as big an issue so i've been able to get away with bigger optics at those same times of days uh and without any issue because i mean right now my my favorite uh, optic is the uh the viper 1050s Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, kind of gives, you know, doing the math, you know, it's a little bit bigger, uh, ex- similar exit pupil. It's a five versus a, I got the math right here, a five versus a 5.25 on mm-hmm. the 842s. But, uh, you know, out here we run a lot of like 1556s out in the deserts and you're not yep. going to run that in New York. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Definitely not. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so staying in those that, um, that difference um, within the same family, that's a, I think that's a great uh, note to make. But two, I, 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 you touched on it, and I kind of want to go back to it, is uh, what – so what actually separates, you know, one family from another? Like, is there certain features, like, you know, this is different, that means it's different? Or mm-hmm. uh, so I know you guys are always kind of messing with your lines and making some great strides. Um, said I still run the Vultures, the 1556 Vultures, but you guys just came out with the new – uh, Diamondback HD 1556s that I've I've tested but I haven't gotten out in the field yet, and mm-hmm. I don't know. It's because you guys did you guys discontinue the Vulture line? Just, we did at this point in time. Yes, it has just been discontinued, and the Diamondback HD is essentially kind of like its replacement at this point. Yeah, because I mean, I, well, I mean, you're getting a cheaper optic, and I think you're better getting a better optic um, in all reality. Yeah, uh, I will make one qualm that I had against the Viper or the, excuse me, the Vulture was that diopter ring that you mentioned uh, being yep. up on the focus ring. That was, I always hit it when I'm trying to uh, change for my, um, with my field of view, you know, you get glassing at a half mile, then you all of a sudden you're glassing a mile and a half. And I'd always hit that diopter ring when I was making yep. my, my jump. Yeah, exactly. It is, it is a little bit uh, goofy having it there in the center. <laughs> yeah. But uh, like I said, I've, I've been, I tested it out just at the store, the, the HDs and I've, I got to get my hands on a pair uh, uh, one of these days. But um, so, yeah, going back to my question, like what separates, you know, one line from another as, you know, as you progress from the crossfire up into the razor line, Viper and razor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Binoculars are really difficult to explain when it comes to that, because um, pretty much 
oh well not not every but a lot of other consumer goods out there on the market if there is sort of a good better best um ascending order of quality or performance um it's very tangible so um i love cars anybody listens to our podcast know i throw that out there from time to time but you know you go up from the entry level car in a certain lineup to their most expensive car and you see the really nice touch screens and you see more horsepower and you see all this stuff that you can see and touch and feel and experience. Um, when it comes to binoculars, I guess I shouldn't say that you can't see or experience it. Uh, the only thing that you're really going to see or 95% of what you're going to see when you jump up is um, optical performance. Uh, you will get a little bit better build quality and some stuff like that, that you can kind of feel in terms of the binocular and just sort of like how it's constructed. Um, but even that it's not like I can put on paper somewhere in a chart when somebody's trying to shop online, you know, um, X percent better build quality that that's meaningless. It, 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 it's not really a tangible thing that I can imagine in my head. Um, and uh, the way that a binocular looks and functions really isn't going to be that much different. So my, you know, our set of $1,500 Razer UHD binoculars that are just the cream of the crop and they have like, you know, incredible optical quality and build, build quality. Um, on paper, if I wrote down the features that it has, I think it would have only one different feature than the Crossfire HD, which is you know, again, our Vortex's most entry-level binocular at like 150 bucks. So um, then people get uh, they get a little bit confused because they're thinking I can get it in the same configuration with you know the same exit people. Um, you know, they maybe compare stuff like field of view and they're like, well, it's not that much different. So why would I spend so much more money? And again, like like I said, um, build quality comes into it, but it's that optical performance that is just so huge. Um, if somebody is a really casual observer and they like to go out in their backyard and watch birds, or they like to go out on a hiking trail and pull up their binoculars from time to time to look at something that's far away. Um, most of that's happening during the day, and then, you know, they set the binoculars back on the shelf. Um, they're probably not going to notice that big, giant difference between a more entry-level binocular and a little bit more mid-to-high-tier binocular. They may see it and think, oh, wow, this one looks really nice, but they may think to themselves, like, why do I need to spend all that much more money for that then? Um, my answer is, if you're in that boat, you probably don't. Um, people who who look for the really high-end binoculars are generally people who are spending a lot of time behind their optics. Right. So um, you're out west yourself. You're in Arizona. You know that when you go hunting out in Arizona, uh, it's an optics game. If you don't have optics on you, if you're trying to go by your naked eye, good luck. Um, you're just going to have to hope you stumble across one. I don't know. Um, but That's about it. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, people who spend a ton of time behind their binoculars, they just have that much more time to notice little issues with the image, things that aren't perfectly clear or the way they would like to see them. Um, and that's the case with really anything in life. If you only experience something for little bits at a time, you can deal with any little weird inconsistencies or things that you wish were better. You can just deal with it because you don't have to deal with it all the time. But if it's something you're spending a lot of time with, then little itty bitty things can become a big nuisance and then, you know, become a bigger deal. And so um, that's where you'll see people jumping up in terms of what line they might be using in their uh, in their binoculars. So, um, again, it's a little bit of you kind of got to trust the company. You got to trust the process and the engineering that goes into it. You know, if I were to tell you what it is that's better about the Razor versus the Crossfire, I mean, it, it comes down to a better optical design, which is all done by an optical engineer. He may be able or to work in, you know, more complicated lens curvatures or a little bit more complex glass types in the optical system or a little bit better and more complex and more expensive prism style uh, or, you know, whatever it is, or the mechanical design that's around the optical system is more intricate or more, uh, you know, whatever it is, hard to machine, harder to mass produce, more expensive to make, uh, but it yields a better image. And so um, a lot of that is just happening under the hood. And then you as the, as the user just get to, enjoy the final experience but uh it is really hard to put on paper yeah that was kind of that was kind of not the greatest question i could have put out there but uh no i think you, i'm 
glad you explained it the way you did, though. Because, um, I mean, well, with, with optics, with binoculars, it's, it's always been, I guess it's pretty cliche to say, but seeing is believing, mm-hmm. um, you know, as far as, you know, that, that quality of image. Because, like, even in, well, going into spotting scopes, uh, I've, I've, I enjoy, like, getting able to test out some different stuff, you know, putting a Diamondback versus a Viper versus a Razor side by side. And just for a quick example, um, a few months ago, I did the, that exact exact test at the local uh, Bass Pro Shops uh, here in, in Mesa. And what's cool about their optics counter is you look right out a window at a mountain. I think it's, I, don't, I can't remember if it's Camelback Mountain or which one it is, but mm-hmm. it's like seven miles away or something like that. It's a long, it's a long poke. You're looking through the window glass too, so that doesn't help as much. Right. But, you know, putting them side by side, you know, with the Diamondback, which I love the Diamondback line. I love the whole family. Uh, you know, I could tell the mountains. I could tell the veg. I could tell those veg growing on the mountain, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I jumped to the Viper, and with the exact same power settings all across the board, uh, all of a sudden that veg, I could tell trees from cactus, um, barrel cactus versus saguaros. And, uh, yep. But it got even to that point. I jumped to the Razor, same power settings. I'm counting the arms on the saguaros. Yeah. Miles. You know, it was – uh, you know, three optics that I would have no problem owning, but you know, there was that visual, that, that, that clarity that you can get. Um, yeah. you know, that's, and that's, that's what I was thinking about the whole time you were explaining that was, you know, it's you really got to trust that, you know, you guys are doing what you do. I mean, putting out some, you know, that having those variations, I mean, of course, more time and more money you guys put into this more money on the, on the end line, but you get, you're getting something for your buck. Mm-hmm. you know you're not yeah just... and and the one thing you'll probably notice too and you you've probably seen this is when you look through binoculars of different varying levels of quality and performance and price tiers you'll see what we call a bit of a diminishing marginal return and it sounds like a bad thing it's not just within our line it's 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 across the board when it comes to optics yeah. and just something that you have to understand um which is if I jumped up from again we'll start out with our crossfire hd binoculars at about 150 bucks and I jump up to our Diamondback HDs, uh, all else similar, uh, at about 250 bucks. I'm going to see a difference when I go up from one to the next, right? So I'm going to say, wow, I picked up for $100 more. I picked up these Diamondback HDs, and I can really tell a, a significant difference. I can see just like exactly what you were saying. I went from being able to tell there is vegetation there to now being able to see individual things about it. Well, now when I go from the Diamondback to the Viper HD, which is our next step up, I've stepped up uh, now about 250 to $300. And so it's a larger step up in terms of price, but maybe the difference that I see between them in terms of performance, it might be about the same perceived difference as I saw when I went from the crossfire to the Dimeback. So same level of perceived upgrade, but a bigger price jump. And then when I go from the Vipers to the Razor HDs, the regular Razor HDs, that's about a $500 price jump. And again, I'll probably see about the same level of difference or jump in performance as I saw in the last two jumps I made. And, um, and then again, from the Razor HD to the Razor UHG, and now we jump up another five, six, seven hundred bucks. And, and again, the same thing occurs. And so, um, you know, that's another thing where some people will find that they have a magical spot on this, uh, this curved line where they say, okay, I understand that I can get better than this, but the price jump that I have to go to get better than this really isn't that worth it to me because I'm perfectly content where I'm at now. And they may stop at, say, the Viper, because they say this is the perfect mixture of price and performance for me. Whereas somebody who is just this all-out, you know, push it to the limit, no excuses, nothing, you know, all on the table – Alaskan hunter who's hunting all the time or they're always jumping back and forth between Western states and doing these really insane hunts. Um, they're not going to stop until they're at the absolute best and they will 100% go for the absolute best regardless of the cost, you know? And so they're saying to themselves, I can't sacrifice anything. So it's totally worth it for me to jump up to the highest tier that I can get. And, and that's, that's a little bit of a, of a complicated thing. And, and unfortunately the thing that I have to tell a lot of people uh, working for an optics company 
is that you can't really tell where you're going to be at until you actually see these things with your own eyes. And that's why I still think the idea of, you know, an optics retailer in person is extremely viable. And I, you know, I, I see them being around for a very long time because there's certain things that you can't go and just figure out on Amazon. I don't think Amazon is ever going to be able to figure out or whatever online retailer, they'll ever be able to figure out how to actually show you the exact way that it's going to look when your eyes get behind that optic. Um, there's no way anybody can emulate it because everyone's eyes are unique. Everyone's brains are unique. Everyone, you know, just their location that they're in is unique. So, um, if you can see these things in person, it's, it's a huge advantage to you and it'll help you figure out, uh, where you're most comfortable at and where you feel you got the best deal. Right. Cause I mean, you're really going to want to look for that bang for your buck. Um, especially, you know, like, uh, you know, this is, this is out mostly for the folks, you know, that might not be. so this podcast is kind of geared towards folks that probably aren't going to be in that realm of the Kaibab or, or the, the, the razor ultras. Yeah. Um, but like, I'm kind of thinking, and you can stop me if you think, but uh, like, I've always thought that the diamondback was for in this realm. Um, hunting mm-hmm. is a whole other realm um, where I don't think so. I don't think this way, but uh, I think it's in the aviation realm, the diamondbacks are, they're really hard to beat. Um, I mean, I've used them hunting for years. Uh, I mean, I've glassed up uh, coos deer at three quarters of a mile. Um, when I was hunting there, I didn't know how to glass further. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, anybody that's probably folks that listen to this probably don't know what a coos deer is, and we'll probably <laughs> get how significant that is to me. But uh, uh, think of a four-legged ghost that is exists. Mm, um, yeah, an that's animal. pretty accurate. Yeah, it's, uh, but as far as what an aviation person is going to be using this for, um, you know, this is, you know, geared towards wildlife management, but you can use this to identify species. Um, and, you know, if you're working on your bird ID, you know, you can really tell the difference between different warblers and sparrows and, you know, what kind of bird you're dealing with. Or, um, I mean, maybe even that distance, just trying to tell apart a young coyote from a gray fox. Um, you know, you're really going to be able to see that color variation on that gray fox. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe you're doing a lot of low light. So maybe something like an 842 is going to be, you know, because you don't want that higher exit pupil versus you don't want the 1042, you know, because you only have that 4.2 exit, you know, staying in the same family like we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I mean, is that kind of along the, like how you guys think about it? Yep, I would say so. Uh, the di- the Diamondback is a special uh, a special product category or family within our lineup. I would say to a lot of us here that work here and a lot of people that use our stuff pretty frequently. Um, there is, uh, like I said, when you have that kind of diminishing return as you as you go up, you know, there's going to be people who need 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 the highest that they can uh, highest that they can possibly get. Um, and there's going to be people that are just sort of like, hey, whatever, I just need something that sits on my uh, on my countertop 95% of the year and I pull it out occasionally look at something far-ish away. Um, But the Diamondback is right in the sweet spot of our lineup, really the Diamondback and the Viper. And um, there's, there's pretty much no one out there that I could go up to and set a pair of Diamondbacks in their hand and not have them, you know, if they're just the, you know, snobbiest of glass snobs which many of us are around here um but if they're the snobbiest of glass snobs or they're just the most casual of, of observers who really hasn't ever even hardly looked through binoculars before um they they can't appreciate it uh in, in some regard I've, I've had people that spend oodles of time behind the glass probably even more time when they're on their hunts or when they're out in the field doing whatever they do uh more time behind the glass than they actually spend looking through their own regular eyes at, at one power um, and you hand them a set of Dimebacks and they think to themselves, you know, like, wait, you said this costs how much? Yeah. And they're like, that, that's, that's all right. I, I totally, you know, I'd get that for my house. I get that for my, any of my buddies who are thinking about getting into X, Y, Z. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and then you hand it to somebody who's never even held up a set of binos to their eyes before. And they think to themselves like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe the things that I'm seeing, the detail I'm seeing it in. Um, so it's just, it's such a great set of binos. I, I, it's really great for somebody, um, 
working here like myself and understanding that, you know, not everybody's always going to be able to go into the store and see something with their own eyes. I get it. Even though I push it all the time, I get it. Um, I never really have to worry that much. If I say, Hey, get a set of Dimebacks. I'm not too worried about the person saying like, man, these are not what I was expecting. Usually people's expectations are, uh, are pretty blown away by them. Yeah. I know everybody that, you know, has, has rocked some sets that I've, you know, handed them. Cause I got a, I do have a set of my, my work pair are, um, uh, D back, 1042s um just because we're you know on an airfield you know it's a long distance we we fight a lot i mean in phoenix arizona we fight a lot of heat shimmer um so mm-hmm. i kind of like having that little bit extra you know and that 4.2 i'm not dealing with low light uh you know it's sunny it's summer here like 350 days out of the year i think today's the first overcast day in like three weeks yeah <laughs> um so you know we don't we don't deal with that here um but uh yeah, I mean, like I said, I've used them. I can't even remember the first time I held a set of Diamondbacks. I've been in this career for, I think, a decade doing wildlife management, and you know, I think a set of D back forty twos have been in my in my hands for a long time. Beat the snot out of them, sent them in for for repair using the VIP. Um, you know, it's that's that's always the pair that I, you know, I'm the first one to actually spout off that. You know, somebody's looking for a pair, so, you know, go check them out. You know, if you yeah. can spend a little bit extra, I mean, I wholeheartedly, you know, if you can afford it, you know. Well, what's the same with work with uh, with optics? You can always buy the best or always buy the ones you can afford. Yeah, buy the best, best you can afford. afford. Yeah. Buy the best you can afford. That's that's certainly not a bad piece of advice there. Um, yeah. Some other things, too, worth, worth thinking about for folks out there that are looking to buy a set of binos. You know, I mean, the topic of which configuration to get comes up. Uh, every time people get really worried because they think to themselves now if you're some of the people around here you'll have you'll have every configuration of optics there is and you just take whatever one out that you think works best for that application that's because we're nerds a lot of people look at a set of binos as the one set of binoculars that they're going to get and have for a really long time so naturally you want to have the one that's just the uh the magic bullet it does everything perfectly and i'm i'm here to tell you unfortunately that's just not the case there is no such thing as one optic that does everything perfectly optics are always a game of trade-offs you want to get the optic with, uh, you know, the biggest objective uh, lens out there in the world because you think it's going to just be a vacuum of light, you know, to bring stuff to your eye. Um, it's going to get really big. It's going to get really heavy and bulky. And there actually are some uh, some effects that it can have on the image that may be less than desirable for certain people in certain situations. Um, it may be uh, it may actually be not as resolute. Uh, or it, it may not have as great of a depth of field as something with a smaller objective. Right. Um, you get something that's an innate power, and of course, there's always the uh, the FOMO, the fear of missing out, you know, in terms of if I have 8 power, I'm not going to be able to see something that's really far away. I have to have 10 power or 12 power. Just just max out the power, however much power I can have. Um, but the nice thing about 8s and the lower power binoculars is that, um, you know, as we've mentioned, maybe a little bit better low light performance. Um, a little bit bigger field of view, uh, which can be nice. I, and the other thing is, too, it's really easy to hold steady. So if you are only magnifying everything that you're looking through eight times, um, that means it's also magnifying all of your individual little shakes that our hands and bodies naturally have. Um, so if you try hand-holding instead of eights, and then right next door you try picking up and hand-holding instead of 15s or 12s, uh, you're going to notice a lot more shakes. It'll probably be a little bit difficult, even though you might be able to see something that was further away. It's like, oh, okay, now I kind of see it. It's really actually hard to identify it or get a good look at characteristics about that thing because you're going to be magnifying all of your shakes. So that's where, um, and Arizona folks know this really well, but Midwestern folks, this is like a foreign concept. Um, putting your binos on a tripod and I don't even care if they're a set of eight power binos. We put eights on tripods all the time here because you'll be shocked at how much better you'll almost even think that you jumped up a tier in optics. You might think that I just turned my diamondbacks into a Viper because you just eliminated all of your shaking out of the equation. And it's incredible how much better you can see everything. Um, so especially with higher power binos, um, you know, though you're definitely going to want to be able to put that on a tripod and then you're lugging a tripod around. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of consider- considerations to take into account. Um, most people, 
if they get a set of 10 by 42s or 10 by 50s, that's kind of like the one we, well, it's de- they're definitely two of the most popular configurations that we sell. So if you're just going by numbers, we sell the most of those uh, more than anything else. Um, but I think that's probably because I'd use a set of tens around here in Wisconsin and they would work just fine. No problem. And I would use a set of tens out West if I were in Wyoming or Arizona, uh, which I just was this last year and they worked, uh, I used a set of tens and twelves. Um, but you know, I'd use them pretty much anywhere and they'll get the job done. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a good all around set, but yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Actually, I was, I was thinking the exact same thing before you said about the tripods um, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Because a lot of, especially smaller uh, airfields, um, they'll have their operations department in a place where they can overlook, you know, the airfield, usually on the ground floor. But I would think a pair of these uh, with something like a, like a well, you, Vortex, you guys have the unit adapter, mm-hmm. you know, someplace where you can have your cup, you know, already mounted right on a tripod, just sets sets there you can have them live in there but if you need a chest pair you just grab them and take off uh, yep. but having that you know be able to get that extra detail you know just figuring out what's going on at the end of the runway because uh, like you said it makes a world of a difference and it's a concept that is alien to most folks um pretty much wet, uh, east of the rockies you don't you don't really see it that often yeah, a lot of people think that tripods are only reserved for spotting scopes or cameras or whatever else. But if you stick a set of binos, and usually what you'll see is that on the center hinge, at the portion of the center hinge furthest from your eyes as you're looking through through the binoculars, yep. um, there will be a plate there. And, and on Vortex binoculars, it's like a little Vortex logo plate. It actually kind of doesn't really look like you could spin it off if you just kind of gave it a quick glance. But if you get in there, it's just threaded and you just lefty loosey it, it comes right off and it allows you to put in a binocular adapter like you mentioned, like our Unidapter, um, or there's a bunch of aftermarket ones too. It's a pretty standard thread. Um, and, uh, and then you can just put it right on your tripod. And uh, yeah, I, I, like the first time I remember I ever looked through a set of binos on a tripod, it was, it was <laughs> incredible. Um. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just thinking. Uh, just got reminded though. My parents came out and visited back. Uh, it was in July, I believe. It's not really per- um, pertinent, but when they were here, Dad's got a pair of ten by fi- or excuse me, twelve by fifty D backs. Uh, you know, he loves them. He's they use them for like watching deer and turkeys and stuff in the backyard when they're on their drives. Um, but they're you know too big. I got a, a a young nephew, and they're too big for him to handhold. Yeah. So. I had an extra tripod, you know, just being a gear junkie. Um, I had a tripod I wasn't using anymore. Uh, we went out and bought them, uh, a Vortex adapter, and, you know, threw those 12s on there. And we're watching Starlings at the back of the apartment. You know, they're having a high old time here. But uh, when they got back to New York, um, they set them, you know, had the tripod in the lowest setting, uh, put – put the tripod, the binoculars on the tripod as some deer walking out. And my nephew thought that was the greatest thing going. Yeah. Being able to watch these deer, you know, they're only 70 yards away, but watching these deer through the set of, you know, fly around uh, through the set of 1250s. Um, oh yeah. Probably seeing all like individual uh, hairs on that thing. Oh yeah. Every, every ear flick, you see everything. And, but dad That's is cool. also taking them out, you know, at much longer range than that. And, Mm-hmm. You know, he's been talking about I think he's been telling all his buddies about you know this whole tripod thing it's not as ap- applicable in New York as it is in Arizona but it's definitely a tool that I think is very underutilized uh, in the Midwest and on the East Coast yep absolutely no but that's really um so I think we've we've covered just about everything I know we're gonna get kicked off here by zoom I'm not sure how long we've been on but I know it's like a was it a 45 minute limit or something nowadays could be, yeah. I can't. It's hard to remember. They've been changing around a little bit here with all the yeah, COVID keep, stuff. I think they gave people a little bit of grace or something. Yeah, they keep messing around with everybody. But um, no, I just want to say actually before I say um goodbye, I do want to get one question from you. Um, and I was mm-hmm. thinking about it earlier. Is we're talking, you were talking about the eye cups, and I was wondering if you could settle a little dispute with for me. Yeah. You turn without a person that doesn't wear glasses. Do you turn yours out or do you leave them in? Oh, yeah. I have argued with people here at the office about this, actually. Um, it's it's whatever's most comfortable for you. So it, t- it depends on face structure. There's a general rule of thumb out there that says if you don't wear glasses, then you should twist them all the way out. And if you do wear glasses, you twist them all the way in. 
Um, but I uh, have found there is usually like a middle setting. Um, if I'm hand-holding, I will twist them out. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. I've, I've settled on this. If I'm hand-holding, I'll twist them out to the middle setting, not all the way out, but to the middle setting. And that is what works best for my eyes. They can have a little bit more inset eyes. So if I twist them all the way out, it actually pushes my eyes too far out. Um, so I twist them out to the middle setting when I'm hand-holding. But actually, when I'm on a tripod, I twist them all the way in. And uh, then I, I just kind of will get myself to a sitting position where I'm not resting my face against the binoculars. I'm just kind of a little bit off the binoculars right in the, uh, right in the eye relief spot. Um, and for whatever reason, I much, much, much prefer not resting my face on the binoculars when I'm on a tripod because I think it, it imparts too much influence and it can kind of shake it a little bit. Um, and I feel like I get a little bit better perceived field of view when the eye cups are all the way in too. So that's where I'm at. I, it depends on the situation, but, uh, yeah. Did that, did that settle the dispute or did that only, only further fan the well, flames of the went, dispute? Well, you went 50, 50 cause yeah. my buddy, he screws his out every time he doesn't wear glasses. He's always screws his out and he always picks on me cause I leave, I don't wear glasses either. And I leave mine screwed all the way in. Um, mm-hmm. I've had guys, even at the optics counters uh, of, of multiple stores, you know, you know, they hand you a pair, you know, and they, they turn them out for you. And I turn them right back in and they turn <laughs> them out. So, so no, so trust me, I want them all the way in. And then just, cause I do the same thing. Yeah. And I kind of, I kind of set them right at the base of my eyebrow and just kind of let them float there. And yep. that's just the way for the same reasons that you've mentioned is I think I get a lot better field of view doing yep. that. And, and I, I don't get the black ring. Um, I, I hate that black ring around the outside. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very true. There's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, that's what we call perceived field of view. And, um, yeah, anytime you have something that's cluttering the outside of the image of your binocular, the actual physical image that your binoculars are delivering to you still has the same field of view as it does if the eye cups are twisted in or out. But when those eye cups are twisted out and you get that big black shadow that they're now causing all around the, the image, it makes it look like you're looking through a tunnel instead of having this nice. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, is a, it is a thing. And like I said, um, I used to tell people, you know, a little bit more cut and dry, oh, do, it, do this, if this, do that, if that. But now I just tell people just if you like it, if it's comfortable, then just do it. So right. whatever makes the image look best. Right. I mean, I'm, and I'm similar to you as well. I just put it out there for the tripod. Um, I either float it, you know, I think that does help to that, that, uh, that shake can get real irritating, especially when you're trying to watch, you finally find, you know, a deer in the distance and you keep losing them just because of the shake that you're imparting. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, I think that's all I have. I think that's really all I got for you today, Jimmy. I want to, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on and, and dispelling with your, your wisdom on optics for us. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, and I appreciate you having me on. All right. Well, we'll see you next time, and have a good one. Great. Thanks. You too.